Hello friends and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, Northern Doctor Who I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you joined us for the second part of our look at series six. So let's jump straight on into it with the rebel flesh and the almost people. When I was a little girl, I got lost on the moors, wandered off from the picnic. I can still feel how sore my toes got inside my red welly boots. And I imagined another little girl, just like me in red wellies. And she was Jennifer too. Except she was a strong Jennifer. A tough Jennifer. She'd lead me home. It's a it's a tricky one because there's there's stuff going on in here that I like. Um, there are some nice scenes, some uh, some decent ideas. I quite like the um, the two doctors, the real one, the ganger doctor, and the way it kind of changes around, the way it subverts expectations, where they're swapping places and that kind of thing. Uh, I like there's some really nice imagery. I really like the kind of the melting faces and the the wall of eyes. Some really nice creepy stuff in there. The problem is, this is a two-parter that is very concerned with the idea of monstrosity and humanity. That's It kind of almost goes out of its way to reference Frankenstein with the like lightning bolt that brings life to the gangers. And it's doing the thing that actually quite a lot of um, Moffat here, Doctor Who, does of questioning the idea of the monster and of the monstrous. Which, like, there are a lot of... I'm not going to go through them now, but there are a lot of Moffat here episodes that, like, either don't have a monster or the monster um, is actually a misguided force for good or something like that. Uh, or it's in some way misunderstood. We've got that in The Girl Who Waited, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And to an extent, even the God Complex. Mm-hmm. But here... What we're presented with is uh, like a kind of essentially a race of people who were told over and over again um, that they are people, that they deserve rights and all this kind of thing. And this is, this is clearly what the episode is trying to drive us towards. The problem is the episode constantly presents them as on some level monstrous. The fact that they have sort of inhuman features is kind of can go one way or the other because on the one hand it is something that we're kind of conditioned to think of as monstrous but on the one on the other hand the episode could critique that and make us wonder why we perceive that as monstrous Mm. but the problem is then you've got ganger jennifer who like with the extendy mr fantastic style neck who like ends up as this weird crawling monster thing that looks very like the it looks very like the final boss of Resident Evil 4, which is a reference that will not land for a lot of people, but will land very well for some people. So, my job is done. So yeah, I there are things in here that I like, but overall, I think it falls fairly flat. Yeah, I feel like there's some interesting ideas. I'm probably going to end up coming out with a very similar take to what you've just said, Kieran, but... Um... It's a bit strange because at the end of the first two-parter, it seems like they're sort of on the verge of some kind of compromise between the gangers and the 
humans and it seems like it's going to be all right but then they just suddenly don't trust the doctor anymore because of mm. an action of Cleves. is that the boss yes so it's a bit of a weird two-parter because i don't know i feel like it must always have been intended to be that way because there is some interesting stuff in the second part as well although i think the second part is a lot more confused overall mm. But I feel it, it just feels like such an arbitrary way to escalate the conflict. And so I feel like a lot of the, the stuff that forms the drama of the episode is misunderstandings or like contrived conflicts where there don't need to be any. Mm. I also feel like there's a bit of a grand tradition of this, but this is an episode set in a location that the person writing it doesn't understand how that location normally works. And this most often happens with department stores. <laughs> Um, because mm. later on mm. we'll get to that but um, they keep referring to where they work as a factory and they, at one point they specifically say it's a factory not a mine or something because we all know if you can't stand the heat get out of the mines mm. and into the factories mm. but it's actually a refinery I think because they're like making the stuff more pure or it's something. really not clear what it is no. because there. It sometimes it seems like it is um, a refinery, but as you say, they do refer to it as a factory. But there's reference to mining it. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot of talk about how they pump it. So does that mean they're refining it there and then passing it along, or is this mm. just like a station along the way, or like is it like an oil rig? It's very <laughs> unclear. Yeah, and I think that like. That confusion makes it difficult because uh, it's difficult to get a handle on what exactly their jobs are and what they're doing, which I think makes a lot of other stuff quite confusing because I think I kept forgetting whether it was like the Ganga goo that they were mining or if it's something else. Because it's acid. It's acid, yeah. So it's not even like the goo stuff, but I think it's not always clear. Mm. And I think ultimately the kind of big huge problem that completely contradicts what the episodes do manage to come what the conclusion they do manage to come to is the fact that it that the rebel flesh ends with ganga amy getting exploded Mm. when they've spent all this time Mm. the only thing that it's managed to do sort of successfully is establish that the gangas have like human consciousness and should be allowed the same rights as other sentient creatures and then they just manage to completely undo that because the one that is has been Amy doesn't matter. So I feel like that's kind of a nice encapsulation yeah. of the problem that mm. it has with establishing the humanity or the like right to be respected as ascension life forms of the gangers because it just undoes it all. And I don't know if mm. that's like an addition to make the series arc work or what, but it's such an odd choice that makes everything else seem kind of pointless because if we haven't reached the conclusion that gangers are humans and are like that gangers have rights then like what's the point i do kind of appreciate how weird some of the stuff in mm. in this is like the wall of eyes and the mass of like rejected ganger corpse mm. goo uh, and they're like junji ito-esque long-necked mm. jennifer i do kind of appreciate that it goes to some like bizarre places but i just feel like it doesn't it's not cohesive. It doesn't solidify into the perfect Ganga form that replicates what a good Doctor Who episode looks like. It mm. just stays as gooey. Mm. I don't think this is perfect. I think it has flaws. 
I think some of which you mentioned. I take the point about the the difficulties with the monstrosity versus humanity problem, but I think there's also complications with that. For me, this is an episode that is all about the nature of labour and the... I think the gangers are, for me, primarily used as a way to expose the exploitation of labour that is hidden within the system. Mm. I think that's what's going on with them. And I think that somewhat ameliorates what's going on with the monstrosity versus humanity thing. Not entirely. I'll go into it in more detail once we get into the episode properly. Mm. With that in mind, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on conceptually. Um, I think thematically it fits with the rest of the season. And I think it's fair, like themes are fairly effectively woven throughout the episode. It's not perfect by any means. Um, I think particularly the second half really falls down quite mm. a bit. But I, in general, I quite like it. I think it's fairly watchable. The other thing that I find quite interesting, that kind of confusion about what they're doing. Is it a mine? Is it a factory? Is it a refinery? I also have a possible idea for why that ambiguity might be there. Okay. But we'll get on to that. Mm. Meet the government's worst kept secret, the flesh. It's fully programmable matter. In fact, it's even learning to replicate itself at the cellular level. Right. Brilliant. Lost. Okay. Once a reading's been taken, we can manipulate its molecular structure into anything. Replicate a living organism down to the hairs on its chinny, chin, chin. Even clothes. And everything's identical. Eyes, voice. I'm soul. Don't be fooled, Doctor. It acts like life, but it still needs to be controlled by us. So, yeah, I think, for me, the gangers are... The way they're presented very much reminds me of the way in which Karl Marx talks about labour, machinery, and the means of production. So, when you think about them initially, they're just like this this vat or like pool of mm. kind of homogenous, some kind of homogenous, I can't really say fluid, it's not really a fluid, but substance. Substance mm. is the word I was looking for. And then later on, as you say, you get the point where they're kind of all melted together. Mm. And then one of them, you know, kind of appears out as a face, out of this homogenous mass. And I think what's really interesting about that is when you listen to how they're, they're kind of spoken about and what their use is in the episode, they're, they say that they're for mining acid and for doing the dangerous jobs that humans can't do, mm. which is exactly what you know, elements of the means of production like machinery would be used for. Mm. You know, they're used for the parts of human labour that, uh, for the parts of labour that humans can't do, um, or to speed up production, things like that. But they're also portrayed in the very way that Marx describes machinery, which is that they have to be plumbed into humans in order to function. Mm. And Marx describes machinery in that way, like almost like as an extension of human labour, and basically relies upon living labour. What I think is interesting about the idea of the gangers as this kind of homogenous mass out of which individuals appear that look like their human counterparts is it fits very well with the idea of congealed labour. So the idea that value essentially is 
the socially necessary labour time can yield within commodities. Mm. So workers, you know, work on a product uh, and then that product is created and out of the value of that labour cumulatively comes the value of the commodity. Because of that, because it's a, it's a, it's a cumulative thing, it's a, it's, a, it's a social, it's value that's created socially, the labour is congealed. So you can't say that X product costs more because this one person took longer to do it. You can't see the individual experience of producing that product. And I feel like that's what you get from the gangers. When an individual comes out, you get to see the individual experience behind the congealed labour. And that's reflected in the fact that they are identical to mm. their human counterparts. Mm. And it's almost like, I think the the idea of monstrosity in the episode is really about the monstrosity of what capitalism does. The fact that it just discards you know, this flesh. There are actually people who feel mm. things yeah. and that exploitation is obscured. And I think the fact that they're kind of portrayed monstrously sometimes because they're sort of, I can't remember what the explanation is given, but they're kind of not stable, I think is what they say. Something like that. Something like that. I think that's to do with the idea of when we kind of see congealed labour, when it's kind of exposed in the way that Shapiro talks about it, it's very much like the uncanny. Mm. It's something that both looks familiar and yet isn't familiar because we all know that labour is used to produce commodities, but we're kind of distanced from it because you can't, sit, like I was saying, you can't see the individual effort that's gone in from, mm. usually anyway. So yeah, I feel like that's, for me, what's kind of going on in this episode. And I think that is probably why there's this kind of ambiguity about what it is they're doing. Because it's trying to be a metaphor for capitalist relations. Mm. So it has to encompass the mines, the refineries, mm, the factories. Okay. But also that word factory, I think, and this is where I have an issue with the episode, plays into, it's kind of looking back to analogous periods. Mm. So they're, they all, it's a stereotype. They all have northern accents. They work in a factory. Mm. It's wrong because that implies that all areas that are exploited or peripheral within the capitalist system are northern. And that's not mm. the case. Obviously, you know, there are places in London where workers are being exploited. There are places, you know, in very wealthy areas where that is happening. But yeah, that's kind of my idea for what's going on. And I think it ameliorates it to an extent. But I do think you're right. There are still issues there. I don't know what you think about that but... i guess i have a couple of questions actually mm, um because like um I'm ready <laughs> i'm not <laughs> well the, the first thing actually is mm. um because when i was re-watching the episode i was struck by the similarity between the ending at least before the bit with the flesh amy where the uh, the doctor drops the survivors off at the like headquarters of the company um, and it's like oh Tell them that terrible things are happening, and make go on, go in and make a fuss. I was struck by the similarity between that and Oxygen from mm, Series Ten. That's yeah, and this notion point. of like confronting the sh- sort of shadowy individuals mm. behind the uh, the capitalist exploitation. 
with the result of what they've been doing. And I think what strikes me is that in neither of those cases do we see any end result. The Doctor says in Oxygen something along the lines of this is it for capitalism, which seems a bit premature, but... um, It's a bit too explicit. Yeah, yeah, that's a problem that I know some people have with Oxygen. I kind of take the point, but... It's just, I like, I guess a counter example would be something along the lines of the Sunmakers, where, like, we actually see what is essentially a proletarian revolution, Mm. like, come to fruition. Mm. Yeah, I think, I remember when I watched that, having thought of all of this, Mm -hmm. I remember finding that kind of uncomfortable. It felt like the kind of Chibnall era, like, just talk to them, and they'll Mm. change things. I, I don't know, like... Because I feel like there's there's these moments in the story where it's almost like, I mean, the gang is referred to it in this way. It's almost like, you know, like revolutionary, I guess, mm. which is kind of problematized because, you know, obviously, like the gang who's primarily saying that is the one who's kind of portrayed as like evil, which yeah, yeah is an issue in of itself. But I mean, yeah. that was going to be my other question. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think, and this is why I was saying it's not, it's not a perfect episode by any stretch, because I think... It doesn't always follow through on its logic, which is again why it reminds me of the Chibnall era, because it's kind of like, yeah, you've got this revolutionary thing, but then they're also, one of them is demonised. Almost literally. Yeah. And similarly, you, you have, you know, I think kind of a lot of Marxism is about how exploitation is inherent within the capitalist system. So... How does talking about it to the people who are doing the exploitation really help? And I think that yeah, it's an issue, and it doesn't it doesn't fit. But I feel like the other stuff that I was saying is kind of so strongly there. It's more an issue of kind of not following through with it, mm-hmm. rather than that kind of negates the other aspects. Maybe okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess another interesting thing about this is that it's a weird kind of throwback episode in some ways, because it's essentially a base under siege, mm. which is something that like was a mainstay of the show in previous years, especially in the Trenton era, that the new series kind of has attempted a few times. Uh, I mean, Impossible Planet Satan Pit is kind of a base under siege, and there's a couple of other examples. But the new series definitely seems less it gravitates towards it less. Mm. So there's a kind of a throwback going on there. I mean, it also, this is a very incidental point, but it struck me that, like, you know, the the Doctor, it is pretty heavily implied. In fact, it's more or less stated that he goes to the whatever-it-is factory refinery deliberately with a plan in mind because he mm. wants to see what the flesh is like at this stage. And so what he hasn't exactly set things in motion in the same way there's an element of the kind of, kind of like what we were gesturing towards earlier, actually, of the Seventh Doctor mm. going to places deliberately with a kind of a plan in mind, knowing what he's going to see, that kind of thing. I don't necessarily have a wider point to make about that. I just think this is an episode because I think did Matthew Graham ever write any other episodes? I can't Fear sure. her. Oh right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but there's a sense in which, almost like the Doctor's wife, uh, if I think a lot less deftly. Mm. Um, he's kind of gesturing towards other eras of Doctor Who and like almost like either his own memory or like a folk memory of the show mm. in some way as well. Mm. I have a question. Okay. Um, I've just written down here, 
what's going on with Dusty Springfield? Because I was like, I feel like that's kind of emphasised. Mm. It's a very yeah, deliberate going choice. On, yeah. But I don't know what it is. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that that is in itself some kind of throwback. Could maybe be. that's the maybe yeah. that's part of the plot line of the one guy who doesn't really have anything going on, but his yeah. plot line got cut. Yeah, because there is one person, like one member of the team, mm. who's just sort of there. Yeah, yeah. And all the others have like interesting stuff going mm. on, and then there's just this one guy. He's just yeah. along for the ride. Yeah, I'd like forgotten he was there until they get to the tower or wherever yeah. they're going. But yeah, that does seem like a bit of an orphaned plot point. Like, yeah. where was that? I wonder if, and this is wild speculation and based on no evidence at all, so, you know, it's it's clearly the case, but what sort of era is that song? 60s? Yeah, I would have said 60s, yeah. mid to late 60s. So could it be contemporaneous with the Dreadn era? Probably, yeah. yeah. That's possible. So I wonder, is that a, a kind of mm. a gesture in itself? Mm. Um, but that is just pure speculation, pure yeah. guess on my part. It'd be kind of an oblique gesture. Yeah, I know. Well, it could be. I mean, it mm. might just be also that, like, um, to try and find some kind of relatability hook between the mm. between our era and that and the when that that's set. Yeah, I mean, for that matter, why are Muse playing at the beginning of mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. the Rebel Flesh? Yeah. Yeah. First, the thing I think that's why I focus on the Dusty Springfield because it's. I feel like the Muse isn't. I mean, obviously, like it's Muse, so you can hear it very clearly. But like, they don't dwell on it. Mm. Whereas as soon as they get there, Rory's like, "Is that Dusty Springfield?" Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, mm. it really emphasises it. But, Both unusual because it's unusual yeah. for Doctor Who to use mm. pop music, either contemporary or past, in that way. Mm. Unless there's a deliberate point to it. And uh, like in Love and Monsters, for instance, like they all oh God, love ELO. Name? I can't remember the Mark Warren's <laughs> character's name, but like, yeah, he's really into ELO, and that is like a character yeah. point in itself. Mm. And uh, when they have to play an old ballad, and it's a uh, toxic. Oh, of course, yes. And tainted love is important to the plot because it gives us the little Christopher Eccleston dancing moment. Mm. Um, Very important. Which yeah. both Bethan and I are replicating. At this moment. Yeah, I think we're varying levels of success. I think, we're trying. We're channeling the vibe. See, I think the thing is, we both did different parts of it, so I think if you mm. put us together, yeah. we're like successful. <laughs> then he'd be like he was in the room. Yeah. Doctor. The word for healer and wise man throughout the universe. We get that word from you, you know. But if you carry on the way you are, what might that word come to mean? To the people of the Gamma Forests, the word doctor means mighty warrior. How far you've come. And now they've taken a child, the child of your best friends, and they're going to turn her into a weapon just to bring you down. And all this, my love, in fear of you. Well, on the back of it, uh surprising chain of of contested episodes and uh, let's move on to a good man goes to war actually jacob do you want to start us off in this one? i really don't like this uh probably not surprising it is way over the top i hate the opening 
you know, the, the, the do you want me to repeat the question mm. thing. Again, it's that thing that makes me very uncomfortable about, like, man going to rescue this, like, his wife or whatever. But, I mean, again, I think there is some complication to that. Like, Elizabeth Sanderford's very good on that. I yeah, think. I was going to say. Um, so I think, yeah, there is ways you can get around that. I've I've written here this rhetorical nonsense is how I describe it. Basically, just lots of attempts to build up to something with ominous sounding lines, but there's not much of substance behind it. Is what I've put. So, e.g., he'll rise higher than ever before, then fall so much further. Delivered in River Song's like generally irritating way in which she delivers those kind of lines. Um, I have a point to make about that, but we can go on. Yeah, we can leave yeah. that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I also think it's totally, totally incoherent. You know, it's like one minute it's a meditation on the Doctor's morality, the next minute they're making jokes about being headless because of the headless monks. Um, then suddenly they're trying to do some kind of like space opera thing. It's just, it's just a mess. I don't like this one and I think that part of the problem for me is that this is where a lot of the plot points of the whole series that I don't like all kind of come together because I never liked the as I said before I never man, I never liked the river being Amy and Rory's child twist and I think I remember at the time this episode came out when I would have been in like sixth form maybe that everyone was sort of like anticipating I don't know if it was actually built up by the BBC or whoever to be a twist but everyone was anticipating some sort of big twist about like ooh who's River Song who's she gonna be Mm. and I strongly remember um, somebody saying to me like oh well I think it's gonna be that she's actually the baby that Amy and Rory are having and I was like what no that would be like that. that's kind of obvious isn't it like based on what had gone before it and then it was that so I don't know if that's just that like people were anticipating a twist that hadn't actually been teased yeah but I just remember being really annoyed that that was what it was. And I still find it kind of strange, partly because, and this is my main issue, I think, of the whole series, I feel like Amy is never really given control over her own body. And I know that the point is that she's been, like, abducted by evil people, and so it's bad people that are doing that. But there's the whole thing with, like, Ganger Amy, who we should understand as a full person in the same Mm. way that normal Amy is, just getting killed. But then also the fact that, like, the Doctor doesn't do anything to try and alert her to the fact that she might be pregnant, so she just doesn't know that she's pregnant, which is kind of, like, a scary thought. And then her baby is just taken from her, and then the Ganger baby explodes in her arms which is just, like, horrifying. And I get that, like, there's kind of a reckoning with her losing her child when we get to the wedding of River Song, but I just feel like it's that's such an obviously big thing, the fact that she doesn't know she's pregnant and then she has a baby and then the baby's taken, that the show never really adequately addresses. And you could say, well, oh, well, it's kind of too big a thing to address in this genre show in this like family show but then I feel like if that is the case then maybe just don't go into those kind of themes maybe but I feel like it would have been possible to address it I just don't think that it really does and especially when you have all these stories about like fathers and children when Mm. there's a pretty significant mum and daughter Mm. in this season and it's just 
sort of assumed to be fine apart from as i say the some the the the, the what is arguably the reckoning between her and madame kavarian which is mm. some kind of climax and it is played like that but i feel like there'd be a lot more going on and then even when um the doctor and rory rescue her the doctor then says like ask permission to hug amy from rory so it's like she's still not in control of her own body and i just find that really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and really quite like a weird place for the show to go and i'll get on like i'm obviously this is more let's kill hitler thing so we can talk about that then but i feel like they try and be like oh well you know they did get to spend loads of time with their daughter because they grew up with Mel's, so that's nice but that's not the same thing Mm -hmm. like that's not that doesn't address what's happening to Amy in this moment that something else happened years ago kind of thing and I think that's kind of my the big reason why I wouldn't have liked this episode but I just also don't really find it that compelling in any other way and I also don't like how they have the thin one and the fat one. Mm-hmm. Just because this is not like, no, this sounded, that sounded like it was a meaningful lead on from what I was saying before, but it's not, it's not fan comment. I don't like how they're like, why would we need names? <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of, I'll, 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 there might be other stuff that I bring up, but that's my main like headline. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason I've gone in this order and the reason why I was gesturing towards this, towards a chain of contested episodes is I really like A Good Man Goes to War. Mm. And here's the fun bit. I agree with most of what both of you have said. Okay. Mm. <laughs> because actually I like to get the negative out of the way. Like, like I think all of your points about Amy's bodily autonomy are absolutely on the money. I fully agree with you there. And I think that is like my my biggest issue with this story and this maybe not my biggest issue with this series but certainly one of my biggest issues with this series I think that's not you're right that that's not adequately addressed I think it is problematized in some ways but not like if a good man goes to war is to a great extent focused around at least Mm. a trauma that Amy suffers and that's never while there are elements of it that crop up it's never quite addressed and I mean there is a line of thought um El Sandford talks about this, that, like, it kind of can't be. And there's truth to that, but I also... I I do kind of agree with you that, like, well, why do it? Mm. But the reason why I really like this story is because I think... It's my guiding principle of Doctor Who that I keep coming back to is... Is it gesturing towards interesting ideas? Is it trying... Is it ambitious? Is it trying to do big things? And this is... In some really interesting ways. Because a lot of... And this is really the episode where a couple of my big themes for Series 6 come into focus. The first of these, uh, which goes back to things I've said quite a bit about the new series, is I think this series, and the back half of the series in particular, uh, begins a kind of rejection, or at least a questioning of the epic register in Doctor Who. And I think this episode is where that begins. Because this episode gives us, like, the thing that, like, 
the audience is suggested to want or, or even made to want and some people have suggested that's there's the kind of manipulative storytelling in there whereby we have the doctor assembling this big army and like as as you say jacob there's this kind of weird rhyme going on about like when it when a good man goes to war uh, not the only weird rhyme this season. no it's not and we'll get to that mm-hmm. um but what happens is all of that stuff happens the doctor like defeats this army and has this grand victory and then that all gets swept away mm. and we realize that the point wasn't the doctor assembling an army the point wasn't the doctor having this grand victory the point is amy has suffered this horrible horrible trauma and the victory is made to seem hollow because it is hollow Mm. and because that kind of story that kind of like again i'm i'm drawing from el sanford here she makes a a good case that this is essentially the closest that doctor who can come to a kind of sexual assault story and that this the narrative that is kind of being built up and then swept away is the male figure, the powerful male figure who is avenging his woman on some level. And that applies to both the Doctor and Rory. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rory is foregrounded in like the, the scene that you mentioned, Jacob, with the, yeah. the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the Doctor is the one that is, is the good man of the title, presumably, at least. And he's the one that like seems to be at the, the centre of this narrative. Um, I'll talk more about other ways in which the epic register is kind of questioned going forward. I think you can probably guess at some of them in particular episodes. But I think what this episode is doing is giving us that kind of grand spectacle that we're used to at this point, particularly from series finales, which this kind of is because there was a mid-season break. And then refocusing and saying, but that's not the point at all. The point is what these, these characters are going through. The point is... The point isn't the revenge. The point is the trauma. And the revenge rings hollow because it should. Because that's not what this story should be about. Now, I think what comes next is very flawed, to say the least. I absolutely agree with you, as I've said, that we need we needed more focus on Amy herself, on her healing, I think, in particular. I think that's where the back half of the season really drops the ball. Now, but that also kind of brings me to the other thing, my other big theme. I've been going on for so long about this episode already. Um, my, my other, well, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting focal point, which is why I'm focus, focusing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, my other big theme, which I've kind of gestured towards already when talking about Rory, which is, well, gender in general, but I think particularly masculinity is what's in focus in this series, which is why we've had, uh, and I, I think that is a problem at times. For sure. But that's why we have like the the focus on stories of fatherhood that we've been talking about. And which we will come back to, obviously, in episodes to come. And that's why we have particularly Rory uh, foregrounded as this kind of this kind of nurturing figure. Uh, it's, it's interesting that this is the one time he's not presented as that, actually. In the context of this story, which, as I say, is kind of rejected in itself. I mean, the other interesting figure from that point of view, whom we meet for the first time here, is Strax. Because Strax is also, is kind of pointedly um, a shadow of Rory in that he's from this martial culture, but he is himself a nurse. Which is suggested, it's suggested that that's a kind of demotion because somehow that is a threat 
to that martial culture, to that Santarans aren't gendered, but what we could read as a kind of toxic masculinity, because they are sort of, they're, they've exclusively been played by male actors. They're kind of coded male, at least on some. Strax case. has boobs, lol. There is that, yes. <laughs> no, genuinely there is that. Um, um, um. Which you can kind of go either way on, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. Is she alright? Yeah, she's just crying. Give her to me, human fools. He needs changing. I just changed her. I think she might need a feed. A feed? Of course. I'll take care of everything. Uh, I really don't think you will, actually. I have gene-spliced myself for all nursing duties. I can produce magnificent quantities of lactic fluid. It's difficult because I understand what you're saying, but then also I'm like, I don't think it's working for me. Mm, yeah. And I think that no, that's, that's just the... that Like, I, I don't... Mm. And I know that you're saying that to a certain extent it doesn't work for you yeah. fully either, but I'm like... Even even the whole criticism of the epic register, it just doesn't, it just doesn't land that way for me, okay. and I think that that means that probably it is like a bit of a, it could just be different interpretations mm. or possibly like a slightly flawed writing of I, how it's supposed to be. But I mean, I think it's both. It's a it's a divisive episode for mm. sure. It definitely lands for some people and doesn't for others. Mm. Yeah, which is I think is true of a lot of series six actually. Like mm. not individual episodes but like the series arc as a whole mm. really resonates with some people and really yeah. doesn't with others yeah. just doesn't hit the spot for me <laughs> the thing that I'm quite interested in actually is mm. the thing with this stuff about masculinity I feel like I should also say another reason why I probably don't like this is because I don't like that whole gang of like Strax and, oh the uh, Paternoster uh, gang Bastra. yeah I don't like that <laughs> but um, I feel like Strax is Placed into a comedic role, which somewhat undermines that critique for me. And given how kind of prominent the the portrayal we've had of Rory as like the last centurion and things like that has been before, and given also the prominence of this kind of father-son relationship throughout the series, maybe I'm being extremely cynical, but when I watched this episode, I was kind of like... And then read Elizabeth Sandiford's kind of response to it. Mm. I was like, is the stuff in here that's progressive just that kind of performative progressivism that we're now seeing amongst kind of... I'm not suggesting Stephen Moffat is part of the alt-right, but that kind of thing with the alt-right of uh, of like, like a, a, a sort of like shifting ideology where they know that something isn't appropriate but they want to include it anyway and so in order to include it they add in a few bits of progressivism to ameliorate what they know isn't appropriate and that's something that concerns me with this episode it concerns me with let's kill hitler as well actually that's mm -hmm. the other one it really does more so i would say but I, I don't know i don't know what you think about that i mean that kind of creates an inherent ambiguity with anything in contemporary culture i yeah. guess which is the awkwardness but I think what I struggle with with Strax, and I I, I don't mind I, mm. I don't mind Strax Jenny and Vestra mm -hmm. mm. broadly, although I tend to have like a few issues whenever they're there, but like mm. I, I quite like them. Um, but he has been like demoted to being essentially what Rory's job is, but mm. he also like literally has like lactating breasts, so he's been like feminized in that way, mm. even though he's part of this like mm. hyper masculine race and is like always gendered as male by people that are talking to him so it's kind of like 
I don't know. I I don't know if he necessarily fits in this critique of hyper masculinity because it kind of seems like the joke is it's it seems like it is just a joke like oh he's part of this very warlike very male race but also he's been forced to like or or he's he's been equipped with breasts so he can feed mm. babies so i don't know my reading of that is that all Santarans can do that okay so right. mm. so like like i i get where you're coming from for sure but um, I, that would be my reading. And so Strax is essentially a different side of what Santarans could be mm. to okay. some degree. Because they do only have one gender, to be fair, don't they? Cause, yeah. Because Robert Holmes... Oh, God. Yeah, let's, not, uh, yeah, let's not go into that. <laughs> I just feel like it is played as a joke. It is, for sure. Um, and, like, I, I get why that's a problem. And, like... Um, but I think the thing is, while I... Uh, I agree with what Jacob was saying that Strax in general is played as a joke. The mm. thing is, from here on out, Strax is more like the kind of typical Suntaran. Mm. And that is also played for a joke. Mm. Constantly. Mm. So it's as much that he is a comedic character than anything. And in fact, I think the kind of the martial Suntaran thing is is the thing that's more kind of played as a joke over and over again as well. As we go forward, as regards the kind of performative progressivism that uh, yeah, you were yeah. indicating, I, I get, yeah, I, I get that as an issue, but I think, I think it's worth, uh, it's worth looking at what the kind of broad strokes are that are going on, mm. more so than like individual bits and pieces of character, and um, because actually, I think the individual bits and pieces of, of character, as we've kind of been saying, are inconsistent, um, and the kind of the broad strokes of what I take to be a, a to show my cards. I mean, this is fairly obvious, but I take to be a genuinely progressive agenda on some level uh, aren't always there. But I think because the overall kind of arc of this episode is the kind of again to borrow from El Sandford, the kind of narrative substitution mm. that uh, that I've been talking about. I think that that for me outweighs the moments where the the ball is dropped, which it absolutely is, mm. because mm. there's a clear intent going on in that, uh, and like intentionality is a dodgy as hell subject, mm. of course. But like, for me, something like that outweighs the kind of like moments where the ball is dropped. And like when I say moments where the ball is dropped, what I'm I'm steering around the fact that I think there are bits in this and especially in let's kill hitler which we will get on to which are like horribly sexist in one way or another um and like there are reasons for that i think like i think it a lot of it comes out of the kind of broad sitcomy farce uh that moffat kind of started out in and particularly in let's kill hitler he's basically writing a farce so he's leaning on particular kind of veins of humor that are based in kind of gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of where that is coming from, uh, which is not at all an excuse it's, yeah. uh, or an, even an explanation, I think. Uh, it's just kind of what I see in it. And I, so I, it's part of the reason why, as much as it irritates me, I tend to see it as kind of a superficial irritation. I, I think there are broader problems. Again, I uh, to go back for about a fourth time to what Bethan was saying, I think uh, the lack of focus on Amy is a real problem. But I, th- I think it's a real problem of, like, a ball being dropped, basically, which is something that 
as we'll talk about as we go on, I think happens a lot in the back half of this series for various reasons, which we can get on to. God. Are you just contemplating the fun, light-hearted discussion we're about to have about Let's Kill Hitler? I'm trying to prolong this discussion for as long as possible. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have to have it. But, um, well, we'll we'll get there. I do have some other things to say. I just wanted to say that I, like, couldn't even really feel bad for a moment when Strax was, like, nearly dying. Because, like, there's a bit where they kind of try to have an emotional moment with Strax, and I was just, like... I'm not feeling it, guys. Like, I like I like the guy. I, I'm even, like, kind of... I, I quite like Strax, but it was just, like... It wasn't landing, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's just another indication of why some of the other stuff might not have landed for me or something. But, um, yeah. I like the um, militarised Anglo-Catholic state church thing. I like the uniforms that have cleric written on them really mm-hmm. big and I would like to have one and wear it around. <laughs> wear it when playing D&D. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think like I've got other bits and pieces but they're not that important so I, I think we've covered a lot of the the broad strokes of this one. I think uh, we might have to kill Hitler. Let's. <laughs> Murder is a crime. <laughs> Don't do it, kids. <laughs> That's the uh, test selector coming for us. Sorry, leg went to sleep. Just had a quick left leg power nap. I forgot I had one scheduled. Actually, bet it's hit down. I think I heard the right one yawning. <laughs> Don't you touch her. Do not harm her in any way. Why would you care? She's the woman who kills you. I'm not dead. Let's Fine. kill Hitler. Right, Beth, and go for it. Oh, okay. Oh, no, I sounded too enthusiastic. Um, I don't like it. So the whole thing kind of comes down to the Doctor being such a special boy that River killing him is as bad as war crimes and that's why the Tess Elector are going for her and that's what I don't like. And... Yeah, I'm also not a fan of, like, using the setting that they do just for, kind of, like, mm. background to something that's not really related. It feels yeah. quite, um... I've read probably, I think you might have even been referring to the same article earlier, but I was reading an article that was saying that, like, the point is that, like, they can't kill Hitler because of the kind of show it is and I do understand that but then also I feel like it's just so misjudged to send your time travel show to a time when that is possible and then have to get around the fact that they aren't going to do it and I just feel like it was so I don't know if it would I don't know maybe the, maybe there would be a really good episode in there somewhere somehow but it just feels so misguided to me that I can't quite get past it and then there's the bits that are almost sort of making light of the prejudices of the nazis like when river says that she was on her way to a gay traveler slur bar mitzvah for the disabled to like annoy them as if it's like a sort of jokey thing to do and i think also it seems like part of the joke is that oh people that are a combination of all those things couldn't exist I don't know. I don't know if that is what it is, but I just don't. I, what I'm trying to say is, I'm not a fan of this episode, and 
uh, I'll probably I might have some more stuff to discuss later. It also the bespoke scythe path thing comes up a lot, so I'm not a fan of that phrase. But yeah, that's me. I think that this episode is a disgrace. It's probably my least favorite episode in the entire series history, and that includes the twin dilemma. I think it's appalling. The idea that you can use Nazi Germany as a backdrop and make jokes out of it, I just find completely distasteful. I do slightly disagree in that I think that there is a purpose for the backdrop in Mm -hmm. relation to the episode tonally, what it's doing. And I'll go into that at some point. But that's one of the big reasons why I have a problem with it. I think the way that that the... setting is used in interaction with the tone of the episode is just absolutely disgusting. Yeah, I don't think it has any redeeming qualities whatsoever. Um, I don't like the the kind of the special boy thing that you were saying. I think you're completely right about that as well. Um, I think that the, the idea of the test selector, like the, the, the people in a, in a robot just seems like something I would have come up with like when I was like five, uh, it's just yeah, it's just ridiculous. I don't know what he was thinking when he wrote this. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't hate it. I wouldn't go so far as to say I like it. Um, <laughs> you know that that would be absurd. Um, it like spoiler. It's not my least favorite episode of this series. I think it's a mess, mm. absolute mess. But I think that in a narrative, a structural way, more than uh, more than anything, um, I get the kind of the tonal problems like uh, both of you have been talking about. But I don't quite it. Uh, it's and as simple as I don't quite feel them quite as much. Mm. And I have some reasons for that. But like to begin with, the re- part of the reason why it's a structural mess is that and this is fairly well documented. But the back half of this series was like a production nightmare. The um, this will come up with writing the river song as well, but like Moffat was just like had way too much on his plate between this and Sherlock. Uh, he's like admitted this himself, and so basically, let's kill Hitler and writing the river song are both like more or less first drafts that had to go onto the screen because there was no more time, mm. uh, which I think explains a lot actually, because there's an outline with both. I think there's an outline of something there. I think it's somewhat more successful with Wedding of River Song, but we'll get to that. There's an outline of something going on there, but it doesn't quite land. The beats are in there somewhere, but they're not fleshed out enough. I mean the the big problem there with the with this episode, because I is the idea of River's inverted commas redemption. Which doesn't quite land for all kinds of reasons. It's too quick. A chunk of it is essentially off screen. It's str- which is strange in itself because this episode, I think, more than any other, although it's more obvious when it comes to Wedding of River Song, really pioneers one of Moffat's storytelling techniques that he'll use a lot going forward, which um, I, I believe I've coined this term. I'm calling narrative compression, where the plot just cycles through a million beats in very short order. And I think part of the problem with this and Wedding of River Song is he hasn't worked out how to do it effectively yet. I think it gets a lot better. Like, I think 
Day of the Doctor, for instance, uh, gets it absolutely right. Whereas here, I think it just ends up as a mess. Now, why am I okay with the setting? Because I think I can understand why that's a problem. Uh, And, like, I think that's fair enough. I am actually more okay with the setting now, weirdly enough, than I would have been a few years ago. And the reason for that is I think there's something actually kind of interesting going on in terms of the character of Melody Slash River. Because I think the idea of someone who is suggested to have little or no empathy, to who seems to view people around her as tools, that kind of thing, um, or becoming fascinated with and then taking on Nazi iconography, as she does when she's wearing like a, um, a sort of SS jacket, I think. I think it's a Wehrmacht one. Wehrmacht, sorry. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, like a Nazi, Nazi clothes. I think that has a peculiar kind of resonance now. Uh, in terms of, like, uh, to stop being candid for a moment in terms of the alt-right. Now, obviously, this is not at all intended. Uh, and it's, it's, I don't think it quite lands right, but I think there is something going on there. Did, did I had something else I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, the again, there's an obvious kind of comparison point there in terms of more recent Doctor Who. In terms of, like, you know, putting the Master in an SS uniform. Uh, which, even beyond the racial dimension, is terrifyingly ill-conceived. I, w- again, while I take both of your points, I think that's a worse misjudgment than, like, the setting of this episode. Because there are things going on here as well in terms of the approach to history that a time traveller might take. There's an opposite pole to the Doctor et al., in terms of the Tesselecta, uh, and in terms of the idea of visiting a kind of justice. Because the Tesselecta's justice is inherently vindictive. It affects nothing, because they can only take people at the end of their time streams. So it's only, it's a, it's a punishment that does nothing. And the, sort again, this gets lost in the mess. But the, the commentary that's going on there is, this is all Doctor Who could possibly do. All that it could do would, in this kind of situation, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's necessary it being like, this is why we haven't done a World War Nazi Germany episode before. Although there could be something of that in there. But this is all Doctor Who could do in this kind of setting would be to kind of, it w- obviously wouldn't change anything because it can't actually change history. But it would be a kind of sticking plaster to make the audience's consciences feel better. And so there is, again, there's some interesting commentary going on there that is completely subsumed in just the morass of stuff Mm. in this episode. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, Hitler goes in the cupboard like Tony Blair. That is a note I've written down and I just wanted to share it. Mm. Anyway, um, again, I've I've talked more than long enough. So it's quite interesting. You said that your opinion has changed on it in a more positive light. Mm. Uh, in kind of recent years because things that have been happening because yeah. I've gone the opposite way yeah I mean, I, I already, which, yeah. which I could un- un- understand as well yeah. for much the same reasons actually I already hated it anyway to mm. be fair like it couldn't really get much lower as it was but 
gone even further because but you dug deep. Uh, <laughs> you tried hard and you found to it. To be fair, though, I did. Uh, like, I went into it this time, and I was like, right, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to try and get rid of all my notions and just, just, just try and mm. look at it as objectively as I can. It didn't work. <laughs> well, but, it did, but like, yeah. Um, the reason why I have a real issue with this is because I think a lot of it is designed to be purposefully incendiary. It's almost like egging the viewer to have the kind of reaction that I had to it at the start. Okay. Um, I think. Like, the title, Let's Kill Hitler, which, let's remember, was the thing that was basically promoted at the end of the previous season, Yeah, is incendiary mm. in and of itself. It sounds jovial, it sounds throwaway about something that's incredibly serious. Um, it just sounds like, oh, well, should we get up today and kill Hitler? You know, it's kind of like... It's not appropriate for the subject matter, and it knows it. The other thing is, like you were saying, that quote about the on her way to the... I'm really glad you said it, because I couldn't remember mm. it. I wrote yeah. it down. It's, uh, yeah. On the way to the gays, the, 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 uh, bar mitzvah for the disabled, or whatever it was. It's awful. Yeah. Again, that is like trying to compress as much offensive stuff as you can into a line. And to me, this entire episode feels like because of this kind of incendiary nature about the things that it's saying, the the level of inappropriate jokes, oh, let's put Hitler in the cupboard, let's have a line in which we insult pretty much every minority group that we can. The thing is, I think with that line, the, the line is obviously supposed mm. to be the joke is that she's cramming as much stuff that will offend the Nazis into yeah. one line. Yeah. But then the reason why it annoys them is because... Yeah. They really hate those people and want to kill them and probably have already by yeah. this point. So the reason why I take issue with it is because essentially this seems to me like an episode that is about free speech and the idea, free speech in the way that is used in a very extreme way. So we can say absolutely anything and you get this a lot with comedy. The idea of like, if you don't have free speech, how can you have comedy? Because some of comedy... Like supposedly is is offensive or should be, uh, you know you get it from people like John Cleese who have come out saying things mm. like that, and Rowan Atkinson, and yeah, all that, all those people. And I think, to me, having that kind of incendiary thing of we can say anything, juxtaposed with the totalitarianism of Nazi Germany, is the episode using its inappropriateness to say that. Free speech is the remedy to totalitarianism, but free speech to this extreme extent that it's presented in this episode. And the reason why I take issue with the bit with River Song is because that's the bit where she weaponizes that and uses it against the Nazis. That's the point at which it becomes the weapon against totalitarianism. Now, in contemporary context, if you ever read anything like um, Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies, um, for example, which is all about kind of like the way the alt-right was kind of incubated online through things like 4chan and Reddit. That is exactly the way that they behave. They make incendiary comments and then claim that it's a joke or that it's ironic. And I think that that's the real issue that I have with this episode. And that's why I think that the tone, the tonal stuff that I take issue with is actually interlinked with the saying. I can see why you'd also interpret it in the opposite way, and I think it's ambiguous, mm. but I take issue with the ambiguity, mm. given yeah, the subject matter. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't like the sort of sitcom-y humour as well. Mm. But I don't mind the test selector. I think that's a potentially interesting idea. I just feel like it doesn't really get time to look at it. And I think that because... Mm. I think it's the sort of thing that I can see working quite well if they'd set it where the where they were going after, like, fictional bad people and then we could relate it to our own mm. to our own world, which is why, like, literally why things like Daleks and the Cybermen exist. Not that they would necessarily have to be the bad guy for that episode. Mm. Mm. But I think it's an interesting idea and it does obviously seed stuff for later in the series. But I just am not keen on the um, the fact that they find out that River kills the Doctor and they're like... Ooh, the worst criminal of all. <laughs> but um, I was also wondering, it's a bit of a weird way to do River's Redemption because she's not really done anything yet. She might have, though, because there's a whole chunk of her life that we don't know about. Before when she's she a was... kid. But yeah, but like, yeah. Mm, I guess maybe that's the thing that would have been like better in a second draft than they yeah, could have yeah. like expressed. Because the thing is, it starts with her doing sort of like juvenile delinquency stuff uh, with uh, Rory and Amy and Ledworth mm. and then it's then kind of strange because it is set up as a redemption but because we haven't really seen her do anything bad like really bad like she stole a car and has mm. a gun in our time which is like illegal but it's not like it's a Bruce Springsteen song <laughs> <laughs> And if that's a crime, then <laughs> then charge me as guilty of it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I feel like there's just stuff like that that seems a little bit like s- sloppy or mm. not quite mm. tonally working. I don't know. I also, I as as I've mentioned before, I have a slight issue with the idea of them like growing up with Mel's being the same as raising their own. Mm child but yeah i don't know that that's equated though like there's it's a it's a consolation but it's not like isn't there something where river says see you did get to raise me after all oh yes oh yeah yeah something like that isn't it yeah something like that which could be her being like flippant and not yeah but there is something that that says it like that which is why i had got that idea and I read it as more kind of like flippant and ironic, mm. but I might be misremembering because it's a while since I've seen it. I think because of the lack of, apart from the bit in Wedding River Song, I think because of the lack of other sort of consequences for what happens to Amy, mm. I think that I might have like overestimated the significance and thought that mm. was supposed to be mm. the show saying like, oh, it's fine. But I think that like it does make more sense on a like flippant reading based on everything else that's going on. Mm. Um and if we assume that the Amy thing just isn't really addressed fully, mm. I think I was trying to find a way for it to be resolved, even if that way was like completely baffling. But I just don't think that it fully is. So that might be that. That's probably that that thing. I do like the opening with the crop circle. I'll say that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's all right. Like yeah, yeah, I think I thought that bad. was quite. I thought that was quite mm. fun because it's like a good dramatic. It is. It's a good dramatic way to open the second half of your season. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, obviously that sounds a bit like damning with faint praise, saying that I liked the first like minute, <laughs> but I know I liked a bit before anything happens. Well, I think it's kind of like a nice way of mm. introduce. Like it's 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 a, it's a fun use of 
time travel slash contacting the doctor mm. Mm. it's kind of the inverse of the uh, the bit at the start of the impossible planet where the doctor is like trying to contact the ponds through like videos and stuff mm. the other thing to point out about this episode in terms of what it sets up and what it like introduces for the series is that um matt smith ditches the like tweed blazer that i really don't like and gets like a kind of frock coat instead oh, which is much yeah. better mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. he does the blazer does come back unfortunately but i feel we can all agree in these times where we're disagreeing about a lot of things <laughs> that the coat is a good coat it's yes superior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes yes in fact that's my first note on this episode the coat is the vastly superior outer layer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so on that <laughs> note of um solidarity 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 yeah shall we move on yeah, yeah. I'm happy yeah. to move on. Move on to Night Terrors. Dun, dun, dun. Look, maybe this was a bad idea. We should sort out George ourselves. Can't. No one's going to tell us how to run our lives. I don't care who you are or what wheels have been set in motion, we'll sort it. I'm not just a professional, I'm the doctor. What's that supposed to mean? It means I've come a long way to get here, Alex, a very long way. George sent a message, a distress call, if you like. Whatever's inside that cupboard is so terrible, so powerful, that it amplified the fears of an ordinary little boy across all the barriers of time and space. Hey? Through crimson stars and silent stars and tumbling nebulous like oceans set on fire. Through empires of glass and civilizations of pure thought and a whole terrible, wonderful universe of impossibilities. You see these eyes, they're old eyes. And one thing I can tell you, Alex, monsters are real. You're not from social services, are you? This is, this is an interesting ride because Night Terrors is an episode I had completely forgotten about uh, on rewatching this series. Um, <laughs> I think I had a vague memory of the Dolls House stuff mm. and the like creepy dolls with the weird faces and like bits of the episode kind of came back to me as I was watching it but like I have a str- I had a strange thing up until I rewatched it where I kept mixing Night Terrors up with Hyde from uh, Series 7 and just like swapping them around never being sure which one was where. Uh, I don't know why, because they're not similar stories at all. But anyway, uh, so this episode, probably more than any other that like that we've covered, apart from maybe Ambassadors of Death, which I was watching for the first time, I came to with more or less a blank slate of like, I have no idea what I'm in for here. And I was slightly pleasantly surprised. Slightly. Um, it is the traditional... Mark Gatiss, fine <laughs> episode. Um, it's written by Mark Gatiss and it's more or less fine. Would be my commentary on it. Um, I mean, there's there's a couple of there's a couple of like vaguely interesting things going on with it, but we can talk about it as we go. I think, but mostly, I think it's like a functional forty five minutes of Doctor Who. Would be my main comment on it, and like uh, where I was complaining about an episode like Curse of the Black Spot not really having any ambitions other than kind of just being Doctor Who for a bit. Weirdly I think that's fine here. Maybe it's because it comes after the weird mess that is Let's Kill Hitler. For all that I've been striving to say good things about that. There's a limit to how much I can say because it's it's nice to have something that just seems to be fairly competent. Uh, and I think there are some kind of interesting ideas to be mined in there as well. Mm. 
yeah, I thought this was qu quite good. I think it's probably like, I don't know if it's just because of what surrounds it, but it seemed slightly more than fine, like as in mm. actually like pretty decent. Um, I think that I'd also, I'd forgotten, like I remembered it, I remembered bits of it when we saw the like preview at the end of Let's Kill Hitler, but I had forgotten basically everything about it. I actually also was doing my rankings and was like, oh, which one have I forgotten to write down? It was Night Terrors. <laughs> Not that that's like, I don't want to mean to like slight it because I'm trying to say it's quite good, but it's like, it's the, 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 the it's solid, but it's just, um, and I think it does say some interesting things about like what family means mm. and parenthood. I think there's some unfortunate implications mm. in that the things that they say are wrong about their child is that he never cries, doesn't respond emotionally and has nervous tics, which could just be that the child is autistic um, or a variety of other things. But that was the mm. one that occurred to me. Yeah. Just because I think I'd been thinking about, like, it reminded me of how, like, anti-vaxxers talk about how children mm. become yeah, after vaccines actually. when they... Yeah. So that was a bit unfortunate. But then it also doesn't show him, like, completely changed at the end of the episode. It's mm, not like yeah, the kid yeah. gets better mm. from it. He just gets over the fear, I think. Mm, yeah. I also find the absence of the mum easier to... More palatable here than in Closing Time. Mm, just because mm. there is a clear reason why she's not mm, there. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and we, we see somewhat more of her than we do with the moment closing time actually yeah i feel like we see enough because we know like it there's enough and also it's instantly understandable why she's not there it doesn't really need to explain because she's got a nurse's uniform yeah. on and she's going to work so mm. it's if you're good like it doesn't feel like a forced way of removing the mum to have yeah. a story about the dad mm. and the child mm. it feels natural mm. um i have some issues with the ending where she isn't fully she doesn't get the experience of mm. finding out that their son is not their son and that she in fact couldn't actually get pregnant mm. she didn't she just never knows about that which i feel like if there'd been an edit they probably could have put a thing in where the doctor says to the father like oh you won't remember you won't remember this anyway yeah that would because i think that makes it, yeah. that makes sense with how the alien works and then at least mm. they'd both be on the level on a level footing even if he doesn't ever tell her what happened mm. because he won't know either but yeah i think overall it's it's, it's a decent episode it's surprise it was a pleasant surprise although it does get minus points for introducing the tick tock oh, goes God. the clock song into the <laughs> series because oh boy is mm. that song bad <laughs> oh yeah oh, let's let's talk but very briefly before we get to jacob talk about that song now so we never have to talk about it again <laughs> where is it coming from who's singing it what the why does it know everything tick tock goes the clock till river kills the doctor yeah. it's needlessly specific because <laughs> oh. like the what i was just i didn't actually say this what i was gesturing towards with the like rhyme in good man goes to war is that it's adding to the sense of the like epic register before it pulls that away mm. um but this oh god this one's just why weird. is it there yeah <laughs> anyway sorry jacob please tell yeah. us what you thought of this um, episode. well i have to say 
Mark Gatiss pulled out all the stops here and he produced something that is slightly better than fine. (laughs) (laughs) In my opinion. Um, No, yeah, I I think this is actually one of his better scripts. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I would agree. I mean, not really. (laughs) It's not really Wish of a Bar, but yeah. Because I I think there's actually some interesting stuff going on here in terms of, um, and again, I'll go into this more in detail shortly, but the way in which the um, the materiality of this kind of like uh, ex-council estate setting uh, interacts with more explicitly fairy tale, like children's story mm-hmm. elements mm-hmm. of it, and how that then produces a kind of social commentary. I mean, it's fairly basic, but it's, it's there, mm-hmm. at least. Um, yeah, and I think that's very effective. I have to agree again. I think, yeah, it is problematic the way in which they're talking about him not crying and so on. Um, I think that's dodgy. Um, I'm also, as I've kind of alluded to, uncomfortable with the mother being peripheral throughout this. But I think in relation to the kind of social commentary I was talking about, I think there are reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is there is some ways you can mitigate that really, but yeah, overall I think it's I think it's I think it's fairly good. Yeah, good. I think the the thing with the the mum being absent, as you, as we said, it works slightly better here, and I think it would it would be less bothersome mm. uh, if it didn't come up again in closing time, mm. and yeah. also I guess in more obliquely in some ways in Curse of the Black Spot. Mm. Because um, mm. it like it wasn't until Jacob you pointed out like a little while ago that it was a pattern mm. that I kind of noticed it and it started to bother me. I really do. I remember joking during Curse the Black Spot that like he's just pretending to know who the like mum is that the kids <laughs> talking about. Mm. Um, so I had remembered it. I think that it's very effective the splitting of the doctor to be with the dad and the child mm. and Rory and Amy getting trapped in the doll's yeah, house. Yeah. Yeah, that works. I think that works really well as a way of separating out the characters but giving them distinct things to do because mm. I think that the scenes of Rory and Amy sort of puzzling out the fact that they're in a doll's house where like the food isn't real and stuff and they're, they're having to like put things together and mm. the, the pan's made of wood and all those bits. I think that's quite clever mm. and it's quite fun to like watch... Yeah, I I found I was really enjoying them as a double act, mm. which kind of felt kind of odd until I realised a lot of the time they are separated, so they get different things to do, mm. which is good in itself, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, it helps def- to kind of define them uh, in ways that aren't just each other. Mm. But it is really nice because Arthur Darville and Karen Gillan work really well together, so it is quite nice to see them kind of play off each other. Mm. I think that they're really convincing as like a, a couple. Mm, like They are, actually. They've got a good rapport with each other, and yeah. it is nice to see them. Yeah, they they because they, it's it's good. It's it's a sign of how well characterized characterized they are in a way that they're able to split them off and have them have their own like adventures without needing the other person to bounce off of. Mm. But it is also just nice to get some time of them doing something together. I think. Yeah, for sure. Mm. It's it's so fine that I have very little to say about this. Uh, oh, one thing I do have actually is just to kind of gesture back to something I said in and the last episode actually, um, where I talked about the kind of childlike quality of the Eleventh Doctor and how it's nice when he's paired with children. Uh, I think there's a the, this episode is a really nice example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's 
as, as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, referenced earlier, um, I've been reading Johnny Spandrel's blog, and he he says that the the scene with the uh, I, sorry, I can't remember the child's name. Me the, either. The I child. <laughs> the child and the doctor uh, in the room while the the landlord is outside talking to the father with the dog. George. That's George, it. thank you. Oh, of course. Um, and George looks kind of a bit a bit perturbed, and the doctor like waves the sonic screwdriver, and all the the toys come to life. It's a really nice moment, and it's a really nice moment of like kind of childlike wonder in the face of Doctor Who, which is quite nice. This um, I feel like this episode would have gone down a lot worse if they hadn't managed to find an actor to play George who was like so adorable yeah. <laughs> in a very like mm. un affected way yeah he's so cute that like it makes everything really you're really invested in the fact that he's so scared mm-hmm. and i do think that matt smith does have a nice way with i mean we'll get to closing time but he has a nice way with like children and babies yeah. which is not necessarily to be expected of somebody who's like what what age is he about like, like he was like mid-20s at that point yeah. yeah um so i think that i mean i know he's an actor and so he can like act and stuff but I feel like he does have a nice like dynamic with mm. them and a nice way of interacting that's actually one of the sort of more subtle ways that you could see as a hint that the Doctor's a lot older mm. than he seems and has had children and it's just very mm. it's just very nice to see and it's it's a it's whether it's just acting or whether it's acting or whether he has a very natural way with children and I suspect it might be the latter I think it does make a an interesting it makes for an interesting hint about the Doctor's age mm. and his past and stuff. Mm. And it's mm. quite cute to watch. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think something that's very interesting about this, which is what I was alluding to, mm-hmm. is the way in which this is a story that is both very heavily involved in the material and yet is also almost fairy tale in some mm. of the stuff mm. that it does. So on the one hand... You've obviously got this, like, ex-council estate setting, these signs of dilapidation, you know, like, rubbish building up and and things like that, and it looks, you know, generally fairly miserable. But then on the other hand, you have, like, one of the strangest ways the Doctor's probably ever been called into a story, which is the child, like, the, ch- the child, George, saying please save me from the monsters. Mm. And then the doctor hearing it with the psychic paper or whatever. Mm. And then being called, it's almost like calling like a, a fairy godmother or a wizard or something, you know, mm. it's, uh, and then that combined with the, with the doll's house as well. Again, it kind of all plays on these like tropes of children's stories and mm. children's nightmares. Mm. And there's such, they seem like su- such disparate things to put together. And yet, I think they kind of come together to form a social commentary in this because obviously this came out in 2011. The Tory coalition government was in power at this point. Um, was came out around the time of the riots. It was, uh, yeah, like just after. Yeah, yeah, just after. And I know Elizabeth Sandifer has mentioned that as well. Mm. Um, yeah, she's really down on it, basically, for yeah. that reason. Yeah, yeah. I slightly differ, um, mm. although I, I don't understand what she's saying. Yeah, so I think in terms of this fairy tale element, what's quite interesting is even though they're brought into the story in this kind of fairy tale fashion, they then pose as community support 
Mm. And I feel like a lot of the message of the story is under austerity, you have more chance of a fairy tale character coming to give you social support than you do the state because all the characters are bewildered when they turn up as, mm. as community yeah, support. Yeah, that's true. You have, you know, the. And there's kind of these peripheral references to austerity, you know, the point where the landlord. The landlord, so obviously it's ex-council, now private, which is interesting, mm. um, comes to the door, and obviously it's a scene with the Doctor and George, but you can see in the background... I've forgotten George's... That's Alex. Alex's mm. name. Alex. Alex's name. Alex and Purcell, I think it is. Yeah, I think you're the right. Guy, the guy's landlord. Like, he's asked, Purcell's asking him for money, and he's saying, you know, that they're not able to, and he says about his wife's wage can only go or partner's wage can only go so far mm. um, and so there is this sense even though it's just peripherally all the way through of these characters actually struggling under austerity and all the social supports have been cut away mm. and that the fact that it's noted that this man is the landlord is part of that social support being cut away as well, mm-hmm. part of the privatisation of all these services. And yeah, I, I, I'm kind of losing where I'm going now. But um, yeah, I think... I know that Elizabeth Sandifer is, is very critical of the story because she's saying that it's it's very much complicit in David Cameron's comments about kind of the broken society and yeah. talks about how maybe the writers come from one of the neighbourhoods where it's standard for children to have a mum and not a dad, which is a disgusting comment. Mm. I think that's somewhat complicated. Firstly, by what I was saying about, I think there is a social commentary that comes through the uh, combination of these two elements of like the material in the fairy tale. But also, I think it's complicated by the fact that the roles are kind of reversed, and even though even though there's kind of the focus on the father-son relationship, it's his partner who is, you know, kind of like the breadwinner. Mm. And I feel like it reverses that kind of traditional hierarchical thing to an extent. Mm. But also I think the other side of it is that the response by the government to the riots was very much a response of let's demonise people who are on welfare. Mm. You know, so they wanted to take away people people's social housing if they took a part in the riots. They were talking about cutting their benefits if they'd taken part in the riots. There was this implicit assumption that people who were rioting had to be on welfare. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think, as far as I know, Alex doesn't work, does he? I think he says in that conversation with Purcell that he's looking for work. Yeah. 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 And I think and I think the thing is, like, he's not really ever demonised for that mm. no. and he's not portrayed as a bad father for that mm. and I feel mm. like prominent figures in the Tory party like Duncan Smith and Cameron were doing that they were demonising fathers and mothers who didn't work uh, and you know making some kind of claim about their effectiveness as parents mm. as a result so I kind of think that that somewhat offsets it and I think the We've kind of talked about the peripherality of the mother. I think, again, that's about the financial pressure, the mm. idea that she has to keep working, and that's why she's not there. And I guess I guess working night shifts is probably better mm. pay, yeah. but mm. at the price of not necessarily being able to work as an effective yeah. team with the dad mm. in yeah. the after the, the mm. child. Yeah. So I think yeah. 
implicit you can mm. obviously it's all kind of implied mm. but mm. i think you can get a lot from thinking about like oh yeah why would she be working nights yeah. like pr- probably they don't have another either mm. either that's the only position she can get and they need the money or mm. you usually get more for working nights mm. yeah. and so she's having to do that even though it's not an ideal situation mm. for the parents mm. so i think that mm. there is i think I think that this is definitely the the better of the the far superior of the like father son stories, mm, yeah. and I think not coincidentally, it's also the one in which the absence of the mother for the story mm. makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. And I think mm. whilst it is a bit weird not to have any stories with mothers in this series, that like a large part of it's about a mother and a daughter, but isn't really reckoned with. I still feel like this is a story about parenthood in general works works well and I think that mm. it's really interesting the context that mm. you were talking about because I think that it is quite like a sensitive portrayal of a family that are like struggling due to mm-hmm. austerity and like financial yeah. pressures yeah yeah I'd like just fully agree with all of that Mm. i mean the other thing as well is um it's only really occurred to me in the context of what you were just saying but i think it's part of the um the ongoing kind of interrogation of masculinity and of kinds of masculinity Mm. in this series that as you say the the mother is the breadwinner in this family yeah Um, i hate that term but i know yes i yeah um i think because closing time, we're interrogating closing time a lot before we even got into it. But um, the you know the underlying assumption there is, oh, men don't know how to father. Mm. Um, whereas in Night Terrors, it's more a thing of like, this is a man who is in a difficult situation for various reasons mm-hmm. and is doing the the best that he can. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and. It's one of the, I guess it's it goes in tandem with the the portrayal of Rory, uh, as a kind of mundane heroism mm. that mm. Uh, goes on yeah. throughout a lot of this. Yeah, that was that was, that was interesting. I think m- I might be prepared to elevate it above slight above fine, ever so slightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, it's Shocking not my favorite scenes. It's, it would be my favorite Gatiss episode, but I think it's in the top tier, mm. the upper tier. Mm. It's a really echelon. good one, yeah. Yeah. But you're still here. You didn't save me. But this is the saving. This is the us saving you. The doctor just got the timing a bit out. I've been on my own here a long, long time. I've had decades to think nice thoughts about him, got a bit harder to stay charitable once I entered decade four. Forty years? Alone? Thirty-six years. Thanks. No, right, I mean, you look great. Really, really. Eyes front, soldier. Still can't win then? (laughs) In fact, I think I can now definitely say I hate him. I hate the doctor. I hate him more than I've ever hated anyone in my life. And you can hear every word of this through those ridiculous glasses, can't you, raggedy man? Anyway, The Girl Who Waited. Uh, Jacob, do you want to start us off on this one? Yeah, I really, really like this episode. 
Karen Gillan's performance is absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, I think the direction is like stunning. Yes. Um, you know the way in which the director negotiates or mediates these the, these two different time streams. Uh, you know, kind of there's mm. certain moments where he brings them together. Mm. You know, um, like the moment where they're kind of in the same room but at different times. Mm. I think that like works beautifully. And even though it's kind of it's kind of a standalone thing in some ways, it also works thematically with the rest of the series because it's kind of the idea again of like the almost hauntological idea of kind of presence and absence yeah. that you get with the silence. Um, and I would I would argue to some extent this is kind of what I was some of what I was saying in the last episode with River as well because mm, mm. she haunts the narrative of yeah. the series. But yeah. yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, I think it all works really well. You've got I I. I've, even just like the the kind of like the all the the kind of sterile sets the like you know the bright white like very simplistic mm, stuff mm. but it works really nicely yeah no i think it's one of those episodes that it's all woven together really well um and direction camera work uh, writing acting they all kind of come together really nicely mm. yeah i i I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> In terms of the direction, actually, um, yeah, Nick Huron, mm. uh, the director of this, um, directs God Complex as well, actually, and which is also, I think, a fantastically directed episode, mm-hmm. uh, as we'll talk more about in, in a little bit in the next episode, in fact. He also ends up, I think he directs a lot of the like series finales, and like the big event episodes from here on, and he directs The Day of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so Moffat clearly kind of latches onto him mm-hmm. quite understandably off the back of these two performances uh, as it were but yeah I I, I love this one. this is one actually uh, that I hadn't seen for quite a long time before we rewatched it for this episode and I was really blown away by it uh, I, was, I was expecting to like it because I, I knew it was one that people tend to really like but one of the things that struck me I suppose was that this is an episode that you could not do with any other companion. Mm. And I think that that speaks to the strength of how Amy, and Rory's character as well, but particularly Amy's character has been built up over the like last season and a half. Because like so much of this uh, story, from the title on down, is based off things that we just understand about Amy's character. From what we know of her, what we know of her backstory, and just how she has, she has been, how she has interacted with the stories up to this point. Like, I mean, it's it's fitting that this is kind of Karen Gillan's crowning glory because it speaks to a lot of the strength of her performance mm. and a lot of the strength of, indeed, a lot of the strength of how she's been written and directed up to this point. That like, this episode is so built around her. Like, obviously the details wouldn't quite work with almost almost any other companion, but it's also just the strength of that characterization. And uh, I think really pays dividends. Like, on the strength of this episode alone, I'm almost sorry that Amy didn't make my top five companions. Mm. Because, like, this really is a, a showcase of how strong her character is. Yeah, I'm going to sound a bit like a repeat of what everyone else has said, really, but I think that... Karen Gillan's performance is somebody who's spent however many like years without any social interaction and how all of the like resentments have been built up is really spectacular. The script isn't always the most 
capable in this regard. Like, she has some lines like, I call my life what it is, hell, that are a bit, like, over the top to my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that the bit about the... I kind of want to love the bit about the Macarena, but then also <laughs> it is kind of one of the times where it verges on the ridiculous a little bit. But That's I think that her... Um, her performance is really, really good, even um, if the material is like a little bit. Sometimes could have done with a bit more of an edit, which I think is going to be like the running theme for this part of the series anyway. I like how it is as a portrait of her and of her and Rory's relationship. I kind of like how at the beginning we see Rory being like kind of a dick, to be honest, because mm. he's like honestly quite annoyed at her for going into the wrong room, mm. which like makes sense because you know sometimes you're just in that kind of a mood. But then about how badly misjudged that is when she actually gets left there for ages. It's kind of like it, our sympathies kind of switch around a lot, I think, from character to character and even mm. from like present to past Amy's mm. and stuff. I think that my main criticism of this is that I could have done with less of the Doctor, to be honest. Like, I know that this is the Doctor Light episode and mm. he, and so he's just sort of in the TARDIS. But he can, he's still sort of there through the glasses that Rory has, mm. which means that at a lot of moments that are emotional moments between Rory and Amy, we have to cut back to the Doctor, mm. like, mm. doing a reaction face mm. or something. And so I kind of wish, in a way, that they'd found a way to use the, doc- the Doctor even more sparingly. Mm. Like, maybe if he wasn't always mm. watching and they had to just, like... They had to, like, specifically call for him to be there or something... Uh, I think that probably would have worked a lot better, but I think that's just because I so much liked the Rory and Amy stuff yeah. that I wanted more of that, and mm. the Doctor felt a bit sort of extraneous. Mm. I find it convenient that older Amy just decides to, like, not want to live. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've read people... I think this is actually Alessandra again, but... Um, and suggesting that that is in itself, like, a... A character trait that Amy has a tendency... I can't point to other examples because I this is not something I've tracked myself. But mm. Amy has a tendency to kind of decide to do something and then just kind of negate her own decision. Yeah, I mean, I guess with the whole, like, marriage, then kissing the doctor, then marriage again. Yeah. That's an example of that. Which does make sense. But also, I feel like it was so much set up, the fact that all it That her, like, concerns were valid mm. and that she'd waited all this time... And that her existence ought to be respected. That then when the Doctor's actually not intending to save her, it's pretty grim. And I, it felt like a little bit like a handy loophole that then she's just like, actually, I'll just stay here, that's fine. Because I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how else they would have resolved it, but mm. I guess it's just... It's a tricky one, and I feel like there would have the the perhaps would have been a better a way to resolve the emotional arc a bit more, or at least like to commit to the fact that there can only be one Amy, and maybe they do have to leave her or something, even if she wants to come. I don't know. Mm. It just felt a bit a bit like convenient, but I can also see how it might be something that is a part of. It would have been nice if they'd had something like that earlier in the episode, I guess, of her committing to something and then not doing mm. it to show the that that is a thing that she does sometimes. Mm. Um, mm. I feel like they might have been able to signpost it a bit more, but 
I still really like this. I think it's really good. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know. To go back to the direction for a little bit, actually, because I think there are a couple of things I want to point to. One is that there's something I noticed when I was watching. I am not someone who pays a huge amount of attention to camera work as a rule. I think one of the interesting things about both this and the God Complex is that I did. Mm. So they're kind of, uh, there's a sense of like, of foregrounding that the mediation in a way. But, uh, which is obviously more relevant to the God Complex, which we'll get to. But there's quite a bit of handheld camera work in, in this one. Especially around older Amy, particularly when she's like dealing with handbots and stuff. That obviously gives it a kind of frenetic feel, but also a very intimate feel, which is very obviously something that works very well here. The other thing is the shot of the kind of the two Amy's side by side superimposed into the same shot is just such a beautiful image. I've written down in my notes this is what the show is for. This just this kind of image. Even if there were nothing to say about it, I mean, the episode itself has plenty to say about it. Just showcasing someone coming face to face with their older stroke younger self mm. is just such a lovely idea and something that you almost have to do at some point, I guess, again, in a time travel show, mm. even if this isn't strictly time travel, although I guess it kind of is. Something that I wanted to track a little bit in this one, actually. Which is, I think, again, we've got some interesting gender stuff going on. Um, so, at the beginning, um, in the bit that you were talking about, Bethan, where Rory's kind of getting annoyed at Amy mm-hmm. um, for going to the, the wrong stream. That whole scene is based around Rory and Amy watching Amy. Mm-hmm. Watching her in essentially a voyeuristic way. Because uh, she's having trouble seeing them. Oh, Rory and the Doctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, did I... You said Rory and Amy watching Amy. Rory and Amy watching... this is a rare episode with more than one Amy. Yeah, that actually kind of works. Sorry, I didn't mean Rory and the Doctor watching Amy. Um, And, like, uh, and obviously later on, then there's the Doctor in the glasses. And so there's a kind of... There's a voyeurism that kind of permeates this episode. Mm -hmm. Later on, then, not too long after that, Amy kind of first comes face-to-face with the, the handbots, the robots with, like... Um, what are kind of seem to be sort of male voices that don't listen to her and that it kind of are insisting they know what's, what's best for her. There's also the female coded interface that is kind of doing something similar, which again, there's a sense of like her wishes being kind of trodden over in this kind of by a kind of male coded, I guess, authority mm. that assumes it knows what is best for her. Mm. Um, which in a way I guess kind of mirrors the Doctor as well uh, throughout this episode The I mean you could you could say and I think it would be a fair criticism that the episode doesn't resolve or even commit to that criticism of the Doctor enough um, given what seems to be going on in the episode yeah there's um, I cannot remember where I got this quote it might be something someone says to the Doctor but does the phrase kindness will kill you Ring any bells? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's um, when they're talking about the telling her not to interact with the handbots because they will their kindness will kill you. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. Okay. No, that struck me as interesting, just because that's like, again, that's a reflection back on the Doctor himself. Mm. He has good intentions, but this whole episode comes about because the Doctor has made a really stupid mistake of not checking on the place he's going to. 
I do feel like when Amy gets caught in the wrong stream, it's a weird decision to choose to press the red button when you're trying to open a door. Yeah, you press the green, wouldn't you? And I would <laughs> like that, that to have at least been mentioned as a weird choice, but I understand because it's like a system of symbols, like it's like red waterfall and green something yeah. else, yeah. where you don't, where it's completely unclear which one is just what function, which I do kind of like. Mm. I also feel like there's an interesting dilemma that's kind of set up in the um, would you rather sit by their bedside for 24 hours or watch and watch them die or sit in here for 24 hours and watch them live with, to explain the two time streams which is like a really weird thing that obviously the episode doesn't really set out to mm. resolve but it's just such an odd dilemma like in terms of the people who've caught whatever disease it is mm. whether it's like which one is the better mm. thing to, to do because I don't know. It made like when when I when it was first sort of said, I was like, "Oh, that's weird. Why would you want to watch them grow old in twenty four hours in this room?" Mm. But then it's like, is that like a selfish thing? So I have been mm. thinking about it quite a lot. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess even that's a reflection back then of like, what's behind your good intentions? Mm. What's, I guess the the kindness thing uh, jumped out at me because I've been doing a long thing of following the the trail of the notion of kindness, particularly in relation to the Twelfth Doctor, uh, which is obviously a central part of his, like, arc. Mm. So, yeah, it just jumped out of me for that reason alone. Mm. I guess the only other thing I'd say is, just as a pointing forward, I think, in a sense, this serves as a kind of prequel to The Angels Take Manhattan, in that the notion of an Amy without Rory or a Rory without Amy is set up here as something that is a nightmarish possibility. Mm. And that is something that I guess has been seeded throughout at various points throughout their their tenure. But here, I guess, is where we really see the consequences of it. And that I suspect that's something that, like, is meant to be on Amy's mind at the end of The Angels Take Manhattan. Mm. Mm-hmm. At the end of their arc, essentially. Um, so I think that wraps us up for that. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay, and that also wraps us up for episode two, uh, or part two of mm. our uh, series six episode, because I decided a while ago that I would number these episodes really confusingly, and so I have to stick to that now. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so join us next time where we'll talk about the last three episodes of series six, and then we will go through our rankings. So, until then, I've been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. <laughs>